Outside the box of religious obligation lies a road less travelled, into the heart of the Father's affection. Slinging freedom all over the place, this is the God Well, we made it back to L.A. You did make it back to L.A. With both with dogs intact. Look at that. Both dogs and your RV functioning still? Oh, yeah, had to have the windshield replaced, but yeah, it was all functioning when we got here. Dude, this is a brand new RV. You've had more issues with this thing. Than, no, not more. Like, you, you're not talking to RV owners. It's, it's, it's the name of the game. But I can't help if some rock through it, some truck threw a rock in my windshield, man. Tell you what. <laughs> yeah, we had to have that replaced. Oh, but uh, and we got it done. It's all done. So we're good. The guy who came to do it had a total spider web thing on his head tattooed. Spider web, spiders. One creepy looking dude, man, but he, he knew what he was doing. Got the windshield in. That's good. Hopefully That's helpful. It, hopefully it stays in. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Now, Abby, Abby gets home, loves. Boy, she was so excited to get home. And now we've taken Zoe out for walks. And now she wants to go. She, she goes to the door and she makes about a hundred yard lap around the cul-de-sac. And then she's done. But okay, she's getting out. Ah. I don't know how long we're going to have that thing, but we still got her. Life at the pace of Abby, a little different, huh? It's a little different for Abby, but we leave her we leave her home a lot. So <laughs> we don't live life at the pace of Abby, but there are times we share it with her. That's hey, fair. I got some ice cream uh, designed for me. Designer flavor ice cream. Okay. In Austin. A group called what was uh, the title? Besame Ice Cream, whatever. And uh, they brought some ice cream as apple fritter or something, something, apple cobbler, apple something. I'm like, who eats this, man? People eat chocolate. They brought it to a, a meeting they were organizing for me. <laughs> so he said, well, tell me what you like in ice cream. We'll design you a flavor. So they did. They called it Chocolate Rain and uh, uh, chocolate ice cream and chocolate chip cookie dough and chocolate uh, brownies and a ribbon of chocolate fudge running through the whole thing and they called it chocolate rain and this is a this is a big time ice cream deal in uh, the austin area they make their own designer kind of ice cream flavors and they sell it out of a food truck kind of a place and mm. they spent all morning whatever making ice cream and they go sell it in about 35 minutes and sell it out they sold they sold chocolate rain out in about 35 minutes and gave me two pints oh. of it oh my gosh ate it all the way home dude <laughs> I don't even know how to get me more of that, but that was awesome. So thanks to the folks at Basin Hay. This is not even a paid advertisement, but one of the few we have on the God Journey. If you're in the Austin area, try to find them. It's uh, it'd be worth doing. Wow, that that there are few descriptions of something involving chocolate that move me towards feeling overwhelmed, and that sounds borderline overwhelming on the level of chocolate that you experience. Yeah, it, it would be overwhelming, which is my normal state of affairs with chocolate. But <laughs> yeah, it's nice to have an idea. I hope they would have called it Chocolate Wayne, but they called it Chocolate Rain instead. So, okay. <laughs> Sounds like that was, they make some amazing ice cream, though. I would have tried their apple fritter stuff, too. Yeah, people seem to have loved it. I just went, why, 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 why waste sugar calories on what is not chocolate? I, I The concept escapes me. But. <laughs> Some people enjoy it. We also had somebody else in the meeting that has uh, bakery things in the Austin area that brought cinnamon rolls. So you can't beat oh, that. Oh, man. Yeah. But I came back uh, same weight I left. So all good there. <laughs> That's impressive. That's some serious work. Well, I'm Wayne Jacobson. 
And I'm Kyle Rice. And welcome to this edition of The God Journey. I also, on my trip, got reminded how absolutely pleasurable it is to destroy yourself. Oh, dear. Okay. Somehow, between our RV and the showers I used in San Marcos, Texas, I walked through something, might have been the infamous chiggers I've heard about, that you can't see but devour your legs. And, oh, no. Boy, I got these itchy, itchy legs. And you know what? I'm telling you what, there's nothing more pleasurable than scratching that itch. And yet while you're doing it, you're shredding your legs. You know, this is going to cost, I'm scratching my leg going, this is going to cost me, but I can't stop, man. It feels, it feels so relieving. And then we finally went to the drugstore and got some anti-itch something or other, and that helped your tail. It. Oh, what a nightmare that was. But I thought about Ooh. it, I was scratching it. I'm going, okay, this is why we humans destroy ourselves, because it actually feels good to do something we know is not good for us. In the long run, <laughs> this is going to cost me more. But And I even looked at Sarah and I said, Dad, scratching this feels so incredibly good. <laughs> Just, anyway. It does. And yet, it's interesting that you say that because I, I was actually talking to Sarah right before we were recording this podcast. Yeah, right. Delayed our recording. Sarah and I will have I, words, I'm sure. That's that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, but... We were just talking and she was giving me a little bit of an update about what was going on and how things were going. And and she made the comment about different types of work. And I don't know why. I mean, it, it to my mind, it makes perfect sense and very common sense. And yet she made the comment about how there's different types of work and, and the familiarity of, okay, so for example, for me, I'm a stuffer. And so I would stuff things down. I would I would go and hide in my bunker. And and Sarah made the comment, I can't imagine how I was able to keep all this stuff repressed for so long. And it's like, well, yeah, but that we're used to that kind of work. We're used to we're used to stuffing it down or I'm used to going into my bunker, even though I know it's not necessarily healthy for me. And then the type of work, once I come out from that bunker or once I start to try these new healthy ways of living life and living wholeheartedly in the world, it can feel really overwhelming. It can feel like, oh, my gosh, this is. This is more work than I could have possibly fathomed. And that it just really resonated with me with some of the clients and conversations that I've been getting into on. They're talking about moving into a more wholehearted life. They're talking about living healthier. And yet they're like, man, this is way more work than I thought it was going to be. And it's like, well, yeah, because the the work that we're used to doing, like repressing things or running from things or fighting things it doesn't feel like work anymore because it's so familiar to us. It's something that we're so used to doing, even though it's exhausting, even though it's having a mental toll, a physical toll, a spiritual toll, or at least we're conditioned to working out or using that kind of work or doing that kind of work versus living in a more healthy space and what that takes. Yeah. So you first talked about different kinds of work. I thought we were talking about vocations. I didn't realize no, we were no, talking no, about huh? helping us mentally and spiritually kind of find our way into a more wholehearted thing. Someone a different conversation all wrote me this week, something that said they were stuck preferring the pain they will familiar with instead of trusting to follow him through the unknown to something far better. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the dilemma of these things that cause such pain in our lives. It's, it's so much, I wouldn't say easier because it's kind of silly sticking with a status quo that doesn't work, but it is easier than, I mean, taking this on and risking disturbing things I may not be able to put back in place. And yeah, that's that's the hard conversations I'm having with a lot of people who 
wrestle with. Do I take on some painful thing in my life? Or do I just kind of keep it over there on the shelf and just work hard and keep my nose down about the other things that I'm doing and keep pushing or repressing or whatever that other emotion or broken place or however you want to describe it? Yeah, it does. That's what I keep saying about Sarah and about so many others that I know that are really taking on the challenge of, I want to live wholeheartedly. I do. I want to find that space, even when they don't yet know what that space feels like. Yeah. It's just the promise that it's got to be better than what I'm doing, but the getting there isn't always better. No, it's not. And it, man, it can feel so exhausting and at times discouraging because it's like, well, at least I knew how to function before, because I think that's part of the healing process is you get unraveled yeah. and it, and you feel like you're a mess. Like I, I know for me, I felt like I was a complete shattered mess when this whole thing started and I started to embrace it. And I was like, man, am, am I getting worse? For me, right after I had the really powerful initial encounter that I had with father at that counseling conference, that next six months following that was the worst bout of depression I'd had in the entirety of my life. Mm. I struggled with suicidality more in that six month period at, on after that initial encounter and that initial freedom and that initial taste of life I experienced more brutal symptoms of depression and suicidality following that than I did before. And man, it like it literally, there was times where I was like, if, if this is healthy, if this is what the, you know, God, I told you that if you existed, you could have my life because I was going to take it. But this is pretty rough. Like, I don't know if this is moving towards healing and wholeheartedness and love or if I'm still on the crazy train and I'm not going to survive this thing. This is a, this is what we tend to leave out of most Christian testimonies. Mm. You know, we just take the highlight. I had this visitation with God, and then look how my life has changed. And what we leave out is there was six months here. We tell the story of what I went through to kind of shift from an appeasement base to an affection base, which is two very, very dark years in my life. I try to be honest about those because I think that's where life is. Like God invites us into a different reality that's not the one we're naturally inclined to, or we would already be there. <laughs> if, we, yes. if it was naturally yes. <laughs> inclined, that's where we would have gone to begin with, but it's not. And so we we kind of like scratching my legs when the chigger things are, th we kind of keep scratching the thing going, okay, hopefully it'll get better someday. Jesus, take all this away from me, blah, blah, blah. Instead of, no, what you're doing is actually causing the destruction. So We've got to learn a different way to live. You want to move to our wholeheartedness. It's not going to be an easy journey, but it will be a fruitful journey. It'll be well, like Sarah talked about at the end of the podcast, well worth it. You know, would you go yeah. back to not? And she says, no, all the time. No, this is so much better, but it takes time to get there. It truly does. And it takes God a lot of rewiring and like a surgeon, the first steps of surgery are not usually a delight for the person being surgically altered, except for me. I like that last little bit when you're going to sleep and you can't stop yourself. I love that feeling. Wow, I'm going away and I can't stop it. <laughs> oh, I just, I don't know. I, I was actually listening to the Voyage of the Dawn Treader the other day, and it I was listening to the part where Eustace is talking about how Aslan removes converts him back from being the dragon yeah. to back to being the boy and he and initially um he's the one 
you know, not Aslan, but Eustace is the one that's pulling the skin, the layers of the skin off and shedding the layers. And then Aslan steps in and says, no, I have to be the one that does it. And how much more, like he describes it as being more painful and how it was so disruptive and it was uncomfortable. And he was seriously considering whether or not this was okay. Like if, because when he was peeling it, it felt good. And there was like this new fresh skin, this new clean thing. And but then, uh, but then immediately he's still the dragon, right? He hasn't changed back into the human being that he wants to be. He's just a scratched up dragon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Wow. Well, the best thing I heard this week, I just heard it this morning, as a matter of fact, read the quote. I thought this is really important for where our world is wrestling with these days. But this is by Adni Gumer, who I have no idea who this is. Okay. He was once at a hidden site in the jungles of Myanmar where a group of Rohingya people lived in constant fear of being discovered and their villages was burned to the ground by the government soldiers. And this is I mean, this hostility between Myanmar and the Rohingya people and the torment and torture and displacement and all that stuff. And he said, I asked the villagers, do you hate them? And their response was one of bewilderment. And they mm -hmm. said, we cannot hate them for by doing so, we would become like them. Hmm. And I read that this morning. I remembered uh, something I have not thought about in a long time. One of my motivations, I think, when I was being betrayed by a co-pastor years and years ago was I could win this fight, but I would become like them to have to win it. Hmm. I would have to trade in gossip and anger and vengeance and for no other reason than I just didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do, even though they were lying and I had truth on my side, I would still have to use the same tactics. Hmm. And those tactics wouldn't be helpful to find the freedom that I needed, or I just, I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I've had numerous, I've had an occasion very recently in my life where the same thing was presented to me. There's a gossip game being played. Now, do I join the gossip game to win and become like them in the process? And I couldn't bring my heart to do it. And then this is another quote read. Uh, this is Johann Arndt said, no man will ever be reconciled by wrath or revenge or returning evil for evil, for victory consists in virtue, not in vice. And as one devil does not drive out another, so it cannot be expected that one evil should be subdued by another, or that enmity against you should be extinguished by affronts and, provoca and provo <laughs> provocations by you. Can't say the word. I just, that seems so clear, and yet our world doesn't work that way. Even the Israel-Gaza thing, we'll go back to that. It, th these are, or the Rohingya-Myanmar thing, it, it just... If you're going to take vengeance on and try and meet vengeance with vengeance, and I know states do that all the time, and it's part of being protected and part of doing whatever, but all you're doing is putting more hate in the world, hmm. more vengeance, more whatever. And we, especially, I don't know how governments deal with this, we who are Christ followers in the earth, to return love, which is what Paul encourages to do in Romans, to bless when you're cursed, to turn around and love in the face of adversity, to not give in to that vengeance that may even be deserved. I mean, righteous indignation. People actually do wrong us. And 
it's easy to get our dander up. And if we feel like it, we're, we have a righteous cause, then we feel all that more angst. We cannot hate them, for by doing so, we would become like them. And even in the current political environment in the United States, I see that politically with many of my Christian brothers and sisters who feel like they have suffered from the hate of the left or the woke crowd or whatever, and think they can turn that around and use the same tactics because the cause is good. And yet it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. You cannot drive out evil with evil. You just can't. Mm -hmm. And yet, what does it take for a heart to stay in that space of, oh my gosh, I, I'm going to love in the face of anger. I'm going to love in the face of adversity. And I'm certainly not recommending this as policy for Israel over Gaza. But I do say, I don't, I don't think what you get in the short term of raining down vengeance on your enemies is going to yield the long-term result of what you want. Mm. where you live. And I think that's as true for us as individuals as it may be for nation states as well. That honestly makes me think of the this movie that I watched very recently. It was actually just last week. Um, have you seen the movie Machine Gun Preacher? No. Gerard Butler? No, I have not. Um, it sounds funny, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's based off of the life of uh, an actual person who this guy was a, a biker, drug dealer, got in prisons for assault, a bunch of different things and ends up getting saved, ends up finding out about some stuff. He, he has some contracting skills and has a, a history in construction. And so he starts his own construction gig, gets saved. And then he ends up um, getting connected with a guy out of Uganda that is talking to him about needing some help with some missions work, some building of some stuff and whatnot. And so he ends up going over there and, and the long story short, he ends up building a, an orphanage for these kids in this very war torn part, like right on the um, border of Northern Uganda. And, um, and yet in, in the movie, he really starts to get lost because at first, like he, he picks up the reason why he got called a machine gun preacher is he got, he picked up this machine gun and there was this village was getting invaded and all these little kids were in this building and these people were trying to come and take them and to either kill them or force them into being child soldiers. And so him and a couple of the people that were with them were protecting these kids and ended up killing several of the rebels. Well, so you see this, He's like this self-defense type situation, killer be killed type situation. But then as the movie goes on, he starts using the same tactics that the people that he was saving these kids from. And he starts losing himself in the movie. And I don't want to ruin it for you because I think it's definitely worth a watch. It's a very intriguing movie. Hmm. But one of the big things that like big turning points is they're they're out in the they're out in the bush and they're trying to get these kids protected and they get pinned down by a sniper and he ends up taking out the sniper and so he goes over to see if they were safe if the sniper's there anymore or not and come to find out the sniper was a 12 year old kid the same age as the kids that he was trying to save oh my god um and so it's just this like you know it's like man what do you like what, you know, what do you do? And it's this big ministry. He, he built all like saved hundreds of kids, you know, all this thing. And yet 
he really got lost for a period of time as he got lost in vengeance and he got lost in the anger and seeing the incredible injustices that were taking place in the world. And that started to infiltrate his heart and steal the joy and the goodness and the, the good intent that he started out doing. All of a sudden, even the people that trusted him started to lose trust for him because he started to get lost in the space of vengeance and injustice. I don't know. I got asked by a student today, does character work in the world today? Does a person of character that wants to live, to have a successful life in this world, do they have, can they do that and still maintain their character? And your answer was? Hmm. <laughs> um, lots of questions. Oh, gosh. Um, but I, I think that's the hard, I think one of the big things for me that I pointed out is, well, what do you mean by success? Because I think that there are a lot of forms of success that the world, not by necessarily the world standards, but by by my by the things that I've learned mirroring the life of Christ and walking with him, character is a big deal. And the ability to be able to wake up in the day and be proud of the work that I've done and the proud of the life that I'm living and that I haven't sacrificed, you know, some of my some of my dreams or my desires and sacrifice my character in order to achieve those things. Uh, but it's, it's easier said than done. You know, I, I knew that I could marry Jess when I found when on our first date, she was telling me about how she turned down her breakout role because she wouldn't compromise her character. And the first thought that went through my head is that's a woman I could spend the rest of my life with somebody who couldn't be bought. And that was really intriguing to me. Um, but it meant, it meant, honestly, it meant her going through almost a decade of major identity disheaval when when she chose to choose her character over her breakout role. Oh, yeah. I think having character is going to put you at a competitive disadvantage in everything the world values. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. Like Jesus said, what, what is highly valued among men is despicable in the eyes of God. And I, I remind myself of that a lot because character is tough to live with in a world where people don't live with character. When mm -hmm. other people lie and cheat and steal, the feeling is I have to lie and cheat and steal too, even though I'm a better person than this, but I'm going to do it because I have to, because the environment, whether it's politics or business, or it demands you to be deceptive. It demands you to be attacking. That, that's what people vote for. So you attack, your, you belittle people. You, you act in a way that has no character whatsoever, and it can be very successful politically. It can be very successful in business. But I, I like what you said. It depends on what your term of success is. Is that, is that enough for you? Is it enough for you just to get to the top of something? Or does character matter over the long haul? And being honest and having integrity and, and those things, to me, they're really, really important. But I won't say I haven't paid a price for them. I've paid a huge yeah. price to live with that. And yet I don't, I, I think ultimately you have to trust that God's bigger than that. So that God has a way to navigate me through the chaos of the world. If I'm going to be honest in character, whatever, I may have less. I may not get the openings other people are getting who are manipulative and exploitive and all that. I may not, but God still has a way to care for me, lead me, guide me, take me to the success he has for me. 
which would definitely be more internal than external. So it's if you're trying to win the game of who has the most money at the end of life, believe me, toss character out the window because it's not going to serve you well. But if wholeheartedness is more important, if caring about others is more important, and I, I do think this is one of the problems with law because we, we have laws, mm. and then if you can circuit, you can do things that aren't illegal, they're just immoral, right? But yeah. no one made a law yes. or... There's a law, and if I can shoot my way through a loophole or get by without following the law when someone else is following the law and nobody catches me, and it's an advantage to me, and I, I, I know people who make that choice every day. Mm. I know people who compromise every day, and, it's, and yet it doesn't lead them to whatever it is that they're wanting. Uh, Matthew Perry passed away this weekend, the guy that was on yeah. Friends. And Sarah and I just happened to, we were just looking for something to listen to while we were driving long hours and we get run out of conversation between us. So we 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 got his biography and downloaded it. And I'll tell you what, here, here was a guy that wanted to be famous more than anything and thought it would fill up the hole in his life that it did not fill up. And so drugs and alcohol were a part of that. And here's the thing that's been left out. I was totally shocked when we got to this part of the story. He went to rehab like 16 times or de detoxed 55 times for various reasons. And they had all kinds of surgery. The power of alcohol and drugs broke on him when God visited him in his kitchen. Hmm. And he tells that story of a very personal God that engaged him. And it says in the book, God saved my life. God saved me, and I just wanted to spend the rest of my life helping people who are addicted to stuff find the hope and freedom that he has. And I want to live the rest of my life to make that the thing. And I, I read that quote earlier in an article this week, today, I think, about him having a desire to help other people, completely left the God story out of it. Mm. Man, he tells the story. Sarah and I got goosebumps listening to him talk about when God met him in his kitchen and how it shaped and changed the trajectory of his life, what he could not do on his own. But then he talks about a guy who wanted success, right? He wanted to be on the number yeah. one TV show and have the number one movie at the same time, and he did. And he said, but it didn't fill up what I was trying to fill up. Yeah, It never does. And it's a powerful story. Sad that at this point in his journey, when he's finally finding himself in bigger space, whatever happens, Happened to him, and he died this this past weekend here in California. But man, it's a strong testimony. I, I'm surprised it's all left out. I'm not surprised. I guess <laughs> that the media leaves that story out, and I, maybe the Christian media is a little suspicious. Well, it's uh, Matthew Perry, after all, he was in Friends. So Sarah and I were deeply touched by his story, to be honest. Hmm. And I I think that's the interesting part about it is I I guess I and I'd love to hear your feedback on this question. Has there been a shift in society or in culture? Because I think about leaders in the past that actually were able to lead from a place of character. Uh, and now, granted, I I don't know them personally. I've only done you know distance research on who they are and heard their stories, you know that kind of thing. And yet, you see these stories of these people that were leaders in significant times in world history, and by a lot of appearances and records, they had a lot of character. Now, were they perfect? No, but they did have a lot of character. They had a lot of integrity. And through that, they led they led different countries or even the world at times through some incredibly challenging times in human history. 
And so I'm wondering if if the value of character has decreased enough in our society to where that can no longer thrive or exist, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that because you don't know what somebody did to get into power that may have had less than character aspirations behind it. But then mm. having gotten it in a pivotal moment in American history or world history makes the difficult choice to do the right thing instead of to do the expedient thing. The people I admire most in the world, people I've met, who have made decisions against their own self-interest for matters of either conscience or direction of the Spirit, which I would say are the same two things, <laughs> since the Spirit works often in our conscience. So to me, I, I admire people like that. They're not all failures. You can be, yeah. you can find success with character. You can't. You just won't find as much of it as if you would if you tossed your character. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's a great reinforcement of it now in our national life, and maybe not in the world life. There's not, it's, it's get ahead however you can, sell whatever you have to to get to the front. Don't, don't worry about character, integrity, kindness, graciousness. Don't worry about those things. They just get in the way. And you got to kind of be of a bit of a cutthroat leader. But I, I'm still grateful. There are times in real moments of push coming to shove that even people who have some uh, character flaws might in a moment of necessity make a bigger choice than themselves. Hmm. And I think those are the ones we hear about later, but we just don't know what's behind it all. Yeah. Hey, you know, we yeah. talked a few weeks ago about capacity and aspiration. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, it's that's gone. On, some of the things we've talked about recently have really gone on to bear some fruit in some unique ways in my life. I, since we had that conversation about my aspiration, whatever it is, and my capacity to live to that, it, I just don't have it right now. I know mm -hmm. some people took that as, well, I have to build my capacity. It was no, 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 no. Just love Jesus enough that God makes your capacity bigger. So it's not yeah. us doing it, but. I have been sitting with people, even on our trip and home, where I'm sitting there looking at, okay, this is what this person might need to do. And then the next question in my head is, do they have the capacity to do it? Yeah. And some of them I would say, no, they don't. So instead of just saying, hey, here's what you should do, or here's what you might think about, mm -hmm. I'm looking for what next step helps build the capacity. It's really strange for me, because in... <laughs> My years of having conversations with people, I've never been in a situation where I've had that thought until after we talked. So then I'll go, okay, I don't think they have the capacity. Or just you're angry at the way someone's treating you, and you think, do they have the capacity to be any different right now? And conclude, mm -hmm. they probably don't. So what can love do that would help inspire greater capacity for them. It's been interesting. I've had this thought, not too many podcasts kind of rink around in there and kind of keep coming up uh, <laughs> from a very different way, because it wasn't about my own aspirations and my own capacity. Yeah. It's people I'm talking to have great aspirations, don't have the capacity to fully embrace them, hard on themselves, self-condemning, self-loathing. So where do I have capacity? How can I respond there? And how can God grow that? And then not putting I wouldn't say expectations. I don't think I'd try and put expectations. Not to give guidance to people or encouragement to things that are beyond their capacity. It's like, yeah. like saying to a three-year-old, paint me the Mona Lisa, would you? I'd like to see how that looks. And it's just, you're just frustrating people. So that's, yeah. that's really gone on to bear fruit in a really fun way for me. I've enjoyed this. 
I, I think that's really intriguing that you bring that up because I, I have found myself being more aware of that question as well over yeah. the last few weeks. And, and so it's really intriguing that you bring that up because I, I've asked a lot of people since we had that conversation very pointedly, do you think they had the capacity to do X or do you think they were in the space where they could actually offer you Y? And man, it is it has really opened up another level of, I think, compassion and grace, and yep. especially in the conversations that I've been having Me too. of, I, you know, I'd never even thought about that. I didn't, I didn't even pause to think if they had the capacity to be able to offer love in this situation or to be able to think with a clear mind in this situation or to not get defensive in this situation. And that really changes the dialogue, right? Like if, like, okay, father is still winning their heart over in love. Love is still untangling that space in their life. And so what does it look like to, to engage them, to care about them in a loving way within their capacity as father continues to work that out? And I, I think that's an interesting question because sometimes, sometimes it's in a hard space, right? Where a person Yes, you can see God moving in their life. You can see it the untangling process happening. But there's also a lot of pain and destruction that's happening when when it when they're not capable or when they don't have the capacity. There there's a lot of pain and destruction that's resulting it, um, because of that. And so what does that look like? How do you how do you walk that out? How do you walk in love both of that person and of yourself, honoring yourself? when you recognize that somebody doesn't have the capacity maybe in that space. I think it gives you much more space for grace. What you just said, mm -hmm. I think is so really critical because if, if this person can't give what I think they should give, what would be easy for me to give because I have capacity and then just think everyone else has the same capacity I do or in the same areas that I do, then you're putting pressure on people that's just going to drive them to frustration. So to me, it gives a lot of space for grace because I will find myself going, yeah, I, as great as it would be for them to be that way, they don't have it. They don't have it to mm -hmm. be that way. And so when they tell you, I really want this, and you know they do, but the, their lives yes. don't match up. Their, their lives, and so in the past of being, you say, okay, well, they say one thing with their mouth, but then they prove that they don't want it. Instead of being able to say, no, I know that's what they really want. They just don't have it to give yet. They don't have that love to give. They don't have what it takes to live in that space. So to me, it just opens up a greater space for me to give grace to people, which I'm sure God has been doing with me my whole life long. <laughs> and I'm just learning to go, okay, I can extend that to others as well. Reminded me a little bit too when I was with uh, I was with, Sarah and I were with a couple who work among the Navajo. They the people we didn't know. They asked, "Hey, if you guys are coming through this way, we'd love to sit down and talk to you." And they work among the Navajo and asked if we could meet in Gallup, New Mexico. So Sarah and I drove an extra long day to get to Gallup for an evening just to have dinner with them. And we were talking. They were talking about the historic trauma of Native American people, hmm. and we were just talking. I mean, they've been working with them for decades. Uh, out on the Navajo Reservation. They live actually on the Navajo Reservation. And they were talking about the, the effect of that as having less impact on the folks that they're dealing with. Even some close friends of theirs among the Navajo have kind of distanced themselves in some way. And then I got talking about historic trauma, and I thought, wow, that's a great word. I like that word, whether it's mm. Native Americans, whether it's uh, 
enslaved people, ancestors of enslaved people in America. And I was thinking how hard it would be for the white man who is the cause of their trauma, historic trauma, to be the one who brings the gospel to them, which for the most part, bringing the gospel is putting them under another set of obligations to a white man's religion. That's how it's perceived. But hey, if you need this not to go to hell, and he was talking about how the, that's losing traction. And then when he said historic trauma, I thought of this conversation Tracy and I had about the redemption story. Mm-hmm. And so I got saying, you know what, it'd be fun. Why, why don't you find like three or four young people to kind of pull together? They don't have to be believers yet, Christians, in any sense of the word. But just ask the question of them. Ask them to explore. How was God unfolding a redemption story to the Navajo before the white man arrived? Hmm. So it's not a white man's religion. It's how has God been entreating these people before the white man even came along? And then, because the white man would have just buried it under his, you know, denominational standards and ethics and rituals. And immediately when we convert somebody, we start throwing at them all the legalistic stuff. And they didn't get a chance to discover redemption story. I think the some of the I forget Bruce Olson that wrote some of the stuff out of uh, South America of finding the redemption story in the tribe as a way to break the gospel out, not bring mm-hmm. some foreign book saying, you guys need to listen to all this stuff and start doing the stuff we're doing because this will save your soul from hell. But find out how was God already entreating? And it, mm-hmm. when I had that conversation with him, and I know I was good because I'm just, I'm just throwing, I'm spitballing stuff, man. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But that really captured them, I heard later. They, they said that really renewed some things in their heart. But I did mm. notice for me, now when I'm talking to people or come back to my neighborhood, I'm, I'm more aware, where's the redemption story in those people already happening? Not, how do I convert them? How do I bring, how do I bring this foreign thing out of nowhere to them and try to convince them I'm right and their worldview is wrong, instead of... Man, if, if, if it is true that God is always working and he has a redemption story going on in every life, then I would serve them best by picking up the refrain of that redemption story that's already happening mm-hmm. and helping them see it and explore it without imposing the artificial Christian religion over their story. I love that. I, man, it's interesting when you say that because... I think inadvertently, without maybe even recognizing it, our conversations about learning to see the the fingerprints or the the signature of God in somebody else's life, whether they know his name or not, I think that's been kind of what has been unfolding when, especially when I talk to young people and college students and they're exploring their life and where they want to go or, or you know, I, I sat down and was having lunch and one of my students sat down and we ended up talking for 45 minutes and I got I got a story from this young individual and man there it was really intriguing because they were starting to even recognize I'm not entirely sure like they, they literally their comment was I'm not entirely sure if or what this higher power is out there in the world but it's hard for me to deny that there isn't a thread of something in my life that's been moving me and shaping me and inviting me into something better. And it was really interesting to hear that. It's like, okay, 
now where do I go with this conversation? Like, Father, what what is his capacity? Because I don't want to activate religious words or come in with some Christianese language that has a bunch of loaded landmines on it for this young individual. But it's like I I want to I want to give honor to the questions that they're asking and maybe help them nudge one step closer to that authentic love, that that genuine knowing of Father's heart for them. But yeah, I, I love that. Where is the redemption story already being worked out? And I I think about, I actually think about when you said that, a story that came to mind when I was in Australia and I was doing my discipleship training school there with YWAM and I was having a conversation with some friends and they literally, they they were talking about their work with the uh, with the, one of the Aboriginal tribes that was right there on the ocean, and they said that they they got there and they were preaching the gospel, and they were like, "Yeah, we know." And, and they were like, "What what are you talking about?" And they're like, "Yeah, this is the story." And they went through the history of the tales of their people, and it was like word for word, almost exactly what they were telling them in their scriptures. You know, and they're like, "Wait, what? Like, how, how do you guys know? Like, how do you know this?" They're like. Oh, we know all about him. We just don't know his name. Like we just have a, you know, these are the these are the words that we put around him. But you're describing somebody that we already know, and it was so like they they were just completely blown away that they were describing somebody that these individuals already knew. They just didn't know this person's name. Yeah, and I th- I think that would be true more than we know because religion and all the religious accoutrements we put to it is always trespass. Always seems to trespass. We're going to interrupt the flow of your life. We're going to knock on your door. We're going to hand you a track. We're going to tell you everything you're doing is wrong. And this is what you need to do is right. Just the whole imposition of Christianity is trespassing on the, the will and the freedom of other people. How do we find that redemption story? And then you're actually serving them, helping them discover this voice, this thing that's been in their life, this thing that's been in drawing them a peace child by Richardson, another book from we, we had a lot of these books back in the day where people would get to tribes, and like like you just described in, in Australia, already had the gospel intact, already had pieces of the redemption story, major pieces. Yeah. And if you just can come in and fill in the guidelines instead of come in saying, oh, no, you're doing it all wrong. Here's what you do. You need to go on a Sunday morning. You need to have a song service with a guitar guy. And you need to do this. You need to wear skinny jeans. And you need to, need to, need to. And it's just like we impose our Western values thinking they're the gospel, and then we don't recognize, and that I think that's just for us right now, and in a post-Christian world that we live, Western world, how do we find the story that's already unfolding, instead of trying to impose a structure on them that will, that most people will just walk away from and reject? Because God is so much better than that. And God has already been at work, already inviting people. It's the son of man in the parable of the wheat and tares. The son of man sows the seed in the world. That's not us. We've always, evangelism we thought was our job. (laughs) We've got to go out there and sow the seeds in the world. No, no, no. The seeds have already been sown. What we're doing is help people discovering the truth that Jesus has already put in them and nurture that seed and encourage that reality. I think we'd be much more effective. And I'm kind of excited to see where this may go with the with the Navajo Nation of just yeah. g- getting them to have a buy-in to faith that's not brought by the white man 
who was the person who defrauded them in the beginning and slaughtered 90% of their ancestors. And how does that person have the wherewithal to come among and say, oh, you should buy into our religion because it's just fabulous. And man, there's just got to be a better way for a truth to come into the world in a life-changing way and give people the space to grow in it rather than just come in in the arrogance of we've got the answers you're not even looking for yet. Thank you for traveling with us today on The God Journey. You can join this conversation by visiting thegodjourney.com. 